I'll give a little bit of a summary because I know we do Esther kind of in pieces only when I, when I teach. So it's been a few minutes. Um, Esther is a really cool story and it's a very much a narrative. Some people even call it a novel because that's the closest kind of example that you might have in, in normal literature to what you see in Esther. I wouldn't call it a novel because that brings to mind like, oh, it's fiction or something, which of course it's not. But what they mean by saying that is it's a really neat story. It starts in one place and it introduces some characters and then you have the rising action, right? And the climax and the, all the stuff that you get in, in English class. And those are all present in this story. And we've been seeing throughout the story of Esther that it introduces these characters, right? And it shows us, okay, this guy is, you know, here's Mordecai and Esther. They're Jews, but not, nobody knows about that. And then here's Haman, and he's an Agagite. And that, we remember, it's going to be really important because that means those two are going to be clashing. And it brings all this conflict and everything. And we've just, last time that we were in Esther, we kind of got to the whole complete crisis of the story where all of a sudden Haman it's revealed that he has this plot against the Jews and Esther reveals that she's a Jew and what this means for her and her people the king gets furious and Haman gets killed in the exact same way that he'd been plotting to kill Mordecai and all the crazy stuff kind of blew up last time so Haman's been taken out of the picture um, in, in a kind of, I won't say a humorous way, but it was a little bit of a dark humor, right? Where he gets exactly the same, kind of his comeuppance happens in exactly the thing he had planned for Mordecai. Esther is revealed now as not just the queen, but also the Jewish queen. And we've seen that all throughout the story of Esther, one thing that's interesting about Esther is that it's the only book of the Bible, as far as I'm aware, where God's name isn't mentioned, and that's actually been kind of an issue. Some people have even said, oh, well, maybe Esther shouldn't be in the, in the canon at all because God's name isn't mentioned. But I think we've seen as we've gone through Esther that that is just not true. God is present all throughout the book of Esther. We've been seeing all these events that are getting orchestrated in ways that clearly there's no way that that could have happened if it wasn't for the Lord, right? So Esther is just randomly the queen and then just randomly, you know, she's able to set up these appointments where she's able to get the king's ear. And then just randomly the lot that Haman picks is this long time after for the actual attack on the Jews. Of course, those things aren't random, right? Those are all the Lord orchestrating all those events. So we've been seeing God's providential hand throughout the book of Esther. But another thing that we see is how God in his providence is using people to accomplish his goals. And those people have to take active steps and they have to take really scary steps of faith sometimes. So you see in the book of Esther, both of those things, God's plan, and then also our responsibility to act when the Lord shows us something he wants us to step out into in obedience. And that's kind of what we're going to talk about in these last three chapters in the book of Esther. We're going to see God's complete victory over a situation that looked really bad, but God is going to get a complete victory for his people, protect them, care for them. But we're also going to see that God's people have an active role in that plan, that God's people have to step up and do the things that God has asked them to do as part of the victory that he's achieving for them. Now, we're going to of course, there's going to be a lot of crazy things that go on in the book of Esther. And sometimes when you read, especially in the Old Testament, you can read some of these stories and you could say, well, how is this supposed to apply to my life? Because I am not a king or queen of anything. And I, as far as I know, I don't have an enemy who's making, you know, writing to the president and saying, you should kill this guy on this day. Like, I don't, I don't think this applies to me. But a lot of this we're going to see does apply to our life because we also have things that the Lord has said he's given us victory in. But there's also a role that we are asked to play in that. And a lot of this, it matters a lot in the way that we approach things like our sanctification and our calling in the Lord and things like that. Now, last time that we talked about sin and sanctification, um, it was a while back, but I used an illustration of mixed martial arts. And I'm just going to go back to that same illustration again because, number one, it made sense to me. And number two, because it's also a biblical illustration. Paul especially will talk about these really violent illustrations when he's dealing with sin, talking about I, I wrestle with my body and I beat my body and these military illustrations. And they make sense. We get them from the Old and New Testament. And what we're going to talk about today is going to involve our sin and our sanctification a lot. Now, it's easy for us, right, to get in this mentality of, oh, yes, I, I, I need to be sanctified. So I need to start getting in there and getting this work done. I need to do, get, make this rule for myself and get this fixed. That's not what we're talking about at all. That's not God's grace, right? We read that in the New Testament. Jesus doesn't want us to be the one in there having to be in the ring, like fighting with Satan all the time. Oh, yeah, it's my job to, you know, I got to go through all these temptations and just, you know, grit it out. That's no, Jesus has accomplished that work for us. Right. 
Jesus, in a sense, has already delivered those knockout blows to the enemy. He took all of that for us, praise the Lord, right? I don't want to be having to deal with all of that. But if you've ever watched mixed martial arts, right? Mixed martial arts is a little bit different because it doesn't really end until it's really all over. And what you'll see a lot of times is somebody will deliver a punch that you can tell watching the fight, oh, that's a knockout. That guy's not getting back up, right? And you'll see that guy hit the canvas, but the fight isn't over until the referee actually calls the fight. And what will then happen is the fighter who got the knockout blow will immediately close with his opponent and he'll start hammering him to make sure that he's gonna stay down. Now all the girls started wincing, all the guys were like, yeah, that's right, that's exactly what happens. Why does that happen? Well, because he, they're in this contest where it's for absolutely all of everything, right? This is the title fight or whatever, he wants to win. He's gotten his advantage and now he's gonna make sure that he completes that advantage, right? And that's kind of the rules of that contest. Hey, this isn't over until we actually call the fight and I'm gonna be on top finishing this to make sure that there's no chance that he's gonna gain this reversal, because that can happen. If you let him kind of sit there, there's occasions where, hey, he wasn't actually knocked out and all of a sudden the fight continues. Now, you want, in this case, the fighter is trying to ensure this complete victory. He's tasted the victory, but he wants to secure that victory. And that's kind of the position that we are with, and that's kind of the position we're gonna see the Jews in, in the book of Esther today. They, okay, Haman's taken out, great. We're good, right? Well, no, not quite yet, <laughs> right? There's a victory that the Lord has secured, but now God is going to ask them to actively participate. It's almost as if God is saying, okay, I've gotten this knockout, and I want you to go in there and finish this off. Now, we might say, well, that doesn't make sense. Why does God want them to do that? Why wouldn't God just take care of it for them and, and not involve them in any way? Well, I'm not sure. But this is what God has asked us to do, right? So we can say, well, why doesn't God just, I don't understand why God doesn't just take us all to heaven right now. Why are we still struggling with these things? That would be awesome. But that is what God has asked us to do. So if God has asked us to participate in the victory that he's securing in our lives, then that seems really important. For some reason, Jesus has decided to leave us here to endure the things that we endure, to walk through the temptations that we walk through. So he thinks that it's better that we have that experience. We wanna make sure we don't miss out on that then, right? If he thinks there's something for us to gain from securing or participating in that victory against the enemy, then I wanna make sure I gain it, right? The only thing worse than actually going through those, those hard times would be going through them and then not receiving the thing that the Lord is asking me to receive, right? So we're gonna see and learn from the, the Jews realizing, okay, we've, we've gotten this victory against our enemy, but the victory is not complete. And they're not going to rest until they are ensuring that they have total and complete victory against the enemy. And that's the same attitude that we want to bring to our approach to the Lord's sanctification in our lives. So we're going to start in Esther chapter 8. This is the last thing that happened is that Haman gets hung on a gallows. Remember we talked about how the gallows is... Uh, a translation that we use, but probably a, a better sense of this is that it was a large pole or a spike that he would have been impaled on because that's how the Persians did that. The Persians were not very nice people at all. And so uh, starting in chapter 8, this has just happened. It says, On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he'd taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I'm pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I've given Esther the house of Haman, and they've hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. So 
they've won this partial victory. Haman is out of the way. The king gives the house, which you, you might say like the household of Haman. Essentially, all of Haman's goods, estate, is all given to Mordecai. And this is part of essentially all of this transfer of power that's going on. Remember, Haman was the guy. He was the number two, I don't know, you might say like the prime minister or something like that in the kingdom. He was the person who had the king's ear. And he's betrayed the king in a really real sense. He's been trying to attack the Jews and, and including the king's own you know, queen. So when the king finds this out, not only is Haman executed, but he starts transitioning all this power that Haman held and he starts giving it to Mordecai because he recognizes, hey, Mordecai actually, remember when Mordecai took care of that assassination plot that I forgot about, but it was located in the records and okay, this is a guy that I can trust. He's had my back. He's actually been honorable and been trying to protect me. So Mordecai all of a sudden is getting elevated in the king's sight just as Haman was getting pulled down. And there's this contrast that we're seeing so Esther is, has revealed the truth and her, about her relationship to Mordecai and her ancestry. And there's all these twists that start to happen in the story. All of a sudden, the secret, right, that was really dangerous from them, she, oh, Esther can't tell who she is because that could be a real problem. Now that, that tie that she has to the Jews and to Mordecai becomes one of the best things that they have going because the king respects Mordecai. He sees that he's honorable. He gives him this position. And then Mordecai can use that position to actually start protecting the Jewish people because the king says, look, I, I agree with you. This shouldn't happen. Do whatever seems best to you. You're the guy now. Go for it. You figure out what you want to do, and I'll go ahead and give it my, my seal of approval. So they've got that situation. That's great, right? And, and they're safe now, we, we can assume, right? They're in the king's palace. Mordecai is, is the guy now instead of Haman, and, and Esther is, is safe. But th that doesn't change the actual decree about the attack on the Jews. And remember how Persian law worked is that once they write something down, it's kind of written down. They don't do the whole amendment thing. They don't take a vote on it. They, we wrote this down. This is what's going to happen. So when Esther comes to beg for salvation from the king's decree, you can see the king kind of say, hey, look, I'll do what I can do, but I can't undo those letters that I wrote. Because she says, hey, can you revoke the letters? And the king says, no, I really can't. I mean, that's not how it works. We wrote the letters. We sent the letters out. They're out there now. Instead, what I can do is I can give you this signet ring, and now you do whatever you would like to do. I can do that, but I can't take the letters back because there was this very legal kind of interpretation of Persian law. So if the law can't be changed, the next best thing is if the king just gives you his signet ring and says, you, you go make some laws now. Do the best that you can, right? And that's exactly what they receive. The king invests Esther and Mordecai with his authority, right? And you kind of see the same pattern as she keeps coming and asking for things. And he kind of does that grand gesture of, well, up to half my kingdom. And you kind of are meant to understand like, yeah, that's not really what he means. But in this case, he's literally, he's handing the signet ring, which was a very powerful tool. That was a tool that he would use to seal official documents. If it says, do this, and then it has that symbol underneath it, that's what you do. And so by giving that authority to Mordecai, now Mordecai is essentially acting in place of the king. Whatever he says is the king's word. He extends the scepter to her again, right? He gives her the best gift that he can. Now they're free to imagine the best possible situation that would allow the Jews to escape and would allow them to crush their enemies. Because remember, just because this wasn't all just about Haman, there was a lot of other people that were kind of sharpening the knife and getting ready to attack the Jews, take their plunder, and, and you know, whether these are all Agagites that are part of you know, Haman's family or whether these are just people that were associated with Haman or just opportunistic people who said, oh, hey, I saw that there was this decree that if anybody wants to go attack the Jews, we can have their stuff. And so they just kind of start, you know, all the scoundrels start coming out of the woodwork to go attack the Jews. In any case, they haven't run out of enemies yet. There's still this, this threat where this decree says it's okay, it's open season day against the Jews. So now there's this threat that's happening, but Mordecai is still receiving every advantage and blessing that had been in the hands of his enemy Haman, right? What did Haman had? He'd had the king's ear. Well, Mordecai has that now. He'd had this, this riches and this wealth that he was using to buy. Remember, he said, look, I'll, I'll put this donation to the king if you'll do this. Well, now all that money is all, is all Mordecai's now because he has Haman's estate. Haman was getting the, the king's signet, right? The king said, okay, here, we'll make up those letters and I'll seal them. Well, now Mordecai gets the king's signet. And he received all these things without scheming or directly attacking Haman. 
And this is kind of important, right? Because I'm sure that that temptation had been there. Can you imagine you're in that situation? You're in the court, you're seeing what's going on. And you're also seeing, hey, you know, this is a place where people make plots all the time, right? He had just foiled a plot against the king's life. So I'm sure that there's a thought in his mind of, you know what? What if this guy was just out of the way? I know the guards, I know this, I know that. I can f I'm sure there was a possibility that he could have made that happen if he'd wanted to. But instead of taking a step in the flesh to just attack somebody with, with his own kind of idea, he was allowing the Lord to take charge. He was following the Lord's plan. He was, you know, he was praying. He was in, you know, weeping and mourning when the decree came through. And he tells Esther, what if the Lord put you in this situation to do something, right? He's thinking, he's trying to ask the Lord, what is it that we're supposed to do rather than taking his own kind of action. Proverbs 13, 21 through 22 says, Disaster pursues sinners, but the righteous are rewarded with good. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. And that's kind of exactly what we see in this story, right? Haman has all these plans. He's got no, no lack of schemes, right? He's got, oh, I'm going to do this, and then the king's going to like me, and then I'm going to take out these Jews because I hate Mordecai, and then I'm going to get all their stuff. And what happens? He's just basically been doing all this hustling so that he can die and it can all go to his mortal enemy, which is kind of funny when you think about it, right? He's been working really hard to get ahead just so that it can be a blessing for Mordecai and for the Jews. The Lord is able to exploit even the devil's worst schemes, right? To providentially protect and bless his children. And this happens all the time. How, you know, look at, you know, Jacob, look, you guys were trying to kill me, literally. Or if you weren't going to kill me, okay, you were going to be really nice. And instead you were going to throw me in a well and sell me for a slave. Very nice. Thanks, guys. But instead of that happening, look what happened for good. Now I'm, you know, second man in place of Egypt and I'm able to provide for our family in a famine and take care of all these people. Look what the Lord did, even though you guys are terrible and look what you were trying to do to me. The Lord does that all the time. The enemy, look at, you know, and I love that uh, passage in the book of Zechariah where Satan comes up and he accuses the high priest and he says, look at this and this and this and this. And it's, God doesn't say, no, you're wrong. He's not a sinful high priest. He says, no, I've taken care of that. Look what I've done. Right? Satan has all these accusations. He's got this plan where he's trying to trip up and accuse. And the Lord says, I see that, but look at my plan. Look how I've provided cleanliness and holiness and righteousness, even though you had this plan instead. Right? So that's encouraging. No situation that we can get ourselves in or that we can see out in the world right, is too far gone for the Lord's intervention. And that's super important because it's really easy for us to get discouraged if we get our eyes on those situations. Lord, you don't understand. This is a sin that I've been caught up in for a lot of years. Lord, you don't understand. They have all the votes in the Senate. Lord, you don't understand. Like, that's just my mom, my dad, my brother, whatever, and that's how they are. Well, the Lord does understand, right? I'm sure that it was tempting for the Jews to say, Lord, you do not understand. They, I'm, I'm in this town square. There's a big sheet of paper, and in letters plain as day, it says, they all get to kill us on this day. Like, Lord, it's super serious. No, the Lord did understand. But the Lord also was going to provide for them in a miraculous way, and then he was going to ask them to take some steps also. It's a good practice for us to use our imagination a little bit when we confront a situation like that. And here's what I mean. Not like, I want us to get good at looking at situations and seeing, but what does the Lord want to do in this situation? Not what I see happening or what I'm afraid might happen or what I think the enemy is trying to do. What, what do I want? What is the Holy Spirit telling me to desire out of this situation? And then pray for that thing, right? Now, I can't guarantee that that's what the Lord is going to do, but I can guarantee, I think the Lord would rather hear those prayers than the prayers that I sometimes send up, which is just complaining about the situation or saying, or not praying at all because I don't think that the Lord is going to do anything because I don't have the faith, right? I think it's way more fun for us to take those things to the Lord and say, Lord, this is bad, but what if it was like this? And ask in faith to see what the Lord would do. And a lot of times what I've found is when you start asking like that, the Lord says, I like that. Here's what I want to do. And all of a sudden the Lord does something that I couldn't have planned out or schemed for myself, but he loves to do that for us, right? So this is kind of what we're going to start seeing now. The king almost has run out of ideas. He said, look, I don't know, man. I sent the letters like you figured out. Here's the signet. You go make it better. I'm just going to go over here and uh, you know, I'll do my thing and you fix this. And he gives them this ability to do their best to fix it. So let's see what they do. In verse 9, it says, The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews 
to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, spread from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. So he sends out an edict. And remember, he, the, the, they're not going to get away with something that's easy, right? They, they're running out of options to say, okay, we would just like this problem to go away. The only edict that they can think of to send out is, look, we get to give them as good as we get. <laughs> that's the, here, here's the new law. You can come for us because that's what we said before, but now we get to come for you too. And he sends that law out to everybody. And now all the Jews, and what I love about it is, I didn't notice this until I was reading more carefully, they're giving these edicts at a time that's nine months, because it says in the third month they send out this next letter, and it's talking about the twelfth month. So he sends out this thing and he says, okay, look, in nine months... They're still going to come for us, but here's what we have nine months to get ready and do this, right? And immediately they start rejoicing. They throw a party. The Jews have light and gladness and joy and honor. Why? Well, because they're, they're realizing, okay, this is the Lord accomplishing this for us. We can't see it yet, but this is the way that the Lord is going to protect us. So we're just going to start celebrating, right? It's, is, is there still some risk involved? Yes. <laughs> is it better than what was going to happen before? Absolutely, right? Look, the Lord has made a way for us, so we're just going to trust that, and we're going to see that for what it is. It would have been easy, I'm sure, for people to say, well, I don't know, it's still going to... But instead of that, they accepted that in faith and said, no, this is the Lord is doing it. He's actually provided us now this way of escape. So there's still these nine months, but now they have time to prepare, and their enemies have time to start rethinking things, right? And we can see that that immediately starts happening, too. All the guys who were saying, yeah, I'm, I'm all in for let's go kill some innocent Jews, plunder their property. I love that. But when, it's, when they might be armed and, and well defended and have a plan, maybe I won't do that. And there's some people that even start to get afraid and start trying to like masquerade as Jews, which I think is hilarious, right? Because for the longest time, Esther has been pretending to be Persian. Oh, I don't want to be, that would be bad. And now there's guys who are like, oh, I'm, I'm definitely a Jew because the king likes them. They're awesome. So I love the Jews, right? And everybody, everything is switched because the Lord is now giving them honor and the Lord is taking care of them. So much so that even people who have nothing to do with the Lord are kind of trying to cozy up and get those benefits because they see what the Lord is doing. So before, right, there's God's provision now. There's fear on the part of those who'd hope to strike God's people. And before, if the Jews had decided, like what happens if when Haman starts ascending and the Jews start seeing that Haman's powerful, if the Jews cook up a scheme to say, you know what, let's kill Haman and all the Agagites and all those people. I don't think that the book would have ended the same way, right? That doesn't seem like the godly way to respond. Let's just, let's just get them before they get us. Yeah, it's, if it's good for him, it's good for us. Let's go ahead and just kill them all. You know, we'll hit him back first. That's what we'll do. Well, that I don't think would have been them responding to the leading of the Lord. But now the Lord has opened this door and given them this opportunity. And now if they were to sit there, imagine if they said, oh, you know what? I just don't think it would be very godly for me to defend myself against these people. So I'm just going to sit here in my house anyway and let whatever happens, happens. I don't think that would be a godly response either. Why? Because God has provided them this clear providential way to do what he's going to provide, what he's going to secure for them. He's saying, look, I'm securing this victory and here's how I want you to participate. And now it's time for them to take some participation in this, right? So it would have been rash and fleshly before, but now here's God's timing and provision and it would be wrong to respond passively. I did spend some time looking and I thought about it and I prayed about it and 
as far as I can see, you can't really get a clear, easy little formula out of the book of Esther for here is how you should engage as a Christian in the political realm. Well, what you do is you do this and you don't do that. Or what you do is you never do anything because that would be, I can't find that in the book of Esther. I'm not sure that that's what the Lord is intending us to receive from the book of Esther. I think it seems like what we're supposed to do is pray a lot and follow the Lord's leading as long as you're keeping your eye on the mission that you're supposed to have, right? Now, Esther is, all these things are changing. There's constant change in the book, right? First you're here, and now she's in the kingdom, and you know, or with the king, she's the queen now. This is happening. Mordecai starts down here, and then he ends up up here. Their circumstances are constantly changing, and they're having to adapt to those circumstances, but not out of just, well, I'm in this new circumstance, so I have all these new opportunities. How am I going to use them? It's more of, okay, well, the Lord has given me this open door. Let's see what the Lord wants me to do with that open door. I'm sure that all along the way, there were people on either side of Mordecai, especially, I think about Mordecai, people who were hardliners who were saying, Mordecai, you're right next to the king. Why are you not using that for our advantage? Why are you not in there? Well, Mordecai, Haman is a bad guy. We all know he's a bad guy. Let's find a way to take him out. And I'm sure there were compromisers on the other side saying, oh, Mordecai, like you don't want to get up there in that political world and get your hands all dirty. You should be over here just staying away from all that. I'm sure there were people criticizing him no matter what he did. When he didn't do anything and he just stood there and was praying in sackcloth and ashes because the, the decree had went out, I'm sure there were people saying, what are you doing sitting there praying? Get to work. Like, what are you doing? You're going to just let us die? Like, okay, I'm glad you're a praying person. How many people have been called that before? I'm, it's nice that you're a praying person, but we're over here trying to get the work done. Right? I'm sure there was that attitude. And then as soon as Mordecai says, well, I got the king's signet ring. I'm going to write a decree. I'm sure there were people saying, oh my goodness, look at Mordecai. He's really sold out now. He's sending those letters above the king's signet ring. Look, the important thing is that Mordecai was paying attention to what the Lord was asking him to do. And he was taking only the opportunities that the Lord was giving him. And he wasn't stepping out ahead of the Lord, but he also wasn't lagging behind the Lord. He was paying attention. And I know that because I can see that there's times when he's in prayer, he's before the Lord. He's not just getting advice. You know, Haman's constantly like, I don't know, what do you all think I should do? That's not how what we see Mordecai doing. God has provided this way of escape. And now, even though they know there's going to be this hard fight coming up, his people can relax and just rejoice in it. They can just enjoy the thing that God has purchased for them. They can take joy in it. It says that there's light and honor, which is there's cool words that is talking about what the Lord has, has purchased for them. They can have faith that the Lord is going to do the thing that he said now he's going to do. Now, we need to be really careful when we read things like this of doing, there's this thing that we can do, and I don't have a better word for it, so we're just going to use well but remembering something right out of Scripture, right? Well, the Bible says that we need to have the joy of the Lord and we need to accept that the Lord has said this is true of us, so we need to accept that that's true in faith. Well, but remember, what about this other thing? Well, but that's true that you need to be joyful, but remember, it's really bad out there. Or well, but remember, right? We need to be really careful of that. Here's the reason. We can sometimes just allow ourselves to get well, but remembered right out of what the Bible is actually telling us to do for a certain time. Right? If you're reading something in Scripture and you feel like the Lord is laying it on your heart and you hear, you know what, I think the Lord is telling me that. I need to forgive that person. That's not a good time for you to do to yourself or let someone else come along and say, yeah, but well, but remember, God says that justice is really important and that person hasn't had justice yet. Hold up a second. The Holy Spirit is speaking to you. Just you listen to that. The well, but remember, like that instruction over there in Scripture is for another time. Let's, let's go look at that when that other time is there. Right now, the Lord is instructing us in this way, right? And so that's really important. It can be very easy for us to let somebody who, and this is what typically happens, is this instruction just comes out of people's personalities. If you read in Scripture and it says, look, you need to be joyful, even though this situation is bad, you need to believe in faith that God has already taken care of that. Somebody who has a personality that doesn't like to hear that says, well, but remember, the Bible says that you're supposed to mourn with those who mourn. Yes, thank you. <laughs> but right now, here's what the Lord is telling us to do, right? We can't let our personalities push back against what the Bible is instructing us. And don't do that with somebody else. If someone else is, you know, it can go the other way. Someone else is in a place where they're struggling and something awful is happening. You don't want to be Job's friend saying, well, but remember, the Bible says to rejoice. Yeah, okay, can you give it five minutes <laughs> and pray with them for a minute? And then let's talk about that, right? Don't, don't, we don't want to skirt around. We want to let the lesson be the lesson from scripture for us, right? 
So right now, yes, I know that we need to be ready to suffer for Jesus. Yes, I know. We've talked about that very recently, actually. I know that God hasn't promised us wealth or perfect freedom from sadness or failure. I understand all those things. But what I see here from Scripture is that all those things still being true, we see God bringing peace and joy and abundance and victory to his people. That that's God's desire, the place where he wants to get his people to. How do I know that? Well, Psalm 34 through 6 says, Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. Psalm 97.11 says, Light is sown for the righteous, and joy for the upright in heart. Now, the, the psalmist wasn't ignorant of all the bad things. Look, read the psalms. There's a lot of like, oh my goodness, we're not going to make it, right? There's a lot of that in the psalms. But you know what else? It almost always, if you look at the structure of the psalms, it starts there, and then it gets to the end. But you know what? God's still God. Like, I'm going to remember that. You, you have to get to that last part, right? You can't just let yourself say, well, here's these circumstances. And so, yes, I know God's told us to rejoice, but look at this. No, no, no. It should be the other way. Yes, I know that this circumstance is happening, but God has told us to rejoice. I'm going to choose to do that. I'm going to choose to believe in faith that the thing that the Lord has said about that circumstance or that sin that is in my life still or that person that I'm dealing with, that I, they're an enemy that comes against me, I'm going to choose to accept in faith what the Lord has said about that, not just accept whatever my eyes can see about that right now. I agree right? That this prosperity that we're talking about is primarily a spiritual promise. Okay? I'm not saying, right? What you're not hearing us say from, from this passage is, and that's what the Lord wants to do in your life. He wants to give you all the plunder of your enemies. Okay, yeah. Like, maybe. Let's be very careful <laughs> about how we apply that directly for us. So, okay, let's say, now first of all, it's not only a spiritual promise. I believe from God's word that God is going to provide the things that we need. The things that we need are not always the things that we want. But the things that we need, God is going to provide for us. That's also scriptural. But let's, let's just go with that. It's a spiritual promise. God is saying he's going to provide a spiritual abundance. Okay. Are you experiencing that? Look, we, we don't just get to write it off and say, no, 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 that's just spiritual. Spiritual doesn't mean fake. Spiritual doesn't mean it doesn't really matter if I have it. Do you have it? If, if those promises are, are, yes, the Lord is going to give me spiritual joy and abundance. Okay. Or am I experiencing that? And if I'm not, then there's something that God, has, God wants to give me that God's purchased for me, the joy of the Lord and the strength of the Lord and the filling of the Holy Spirit and all those things that I'm not experiencing. That's no good. I, I can't be, you know, you, you're at that place now in your fight with the enemy where you're really pretty close to winning and you're just kind of saying, all right, good, I think we did it. We're good. It's probably fine. He, he looks really tired. No, <laughs> don't quit now, right? The Lord wants to give you all of these things that he said, I want you to have this so that you can have victory. And you're saying, ah, I think that I can achieve victory with way less than that. But why? <laughs> Wouldn't it be more fun to have all the things that the Lord wants us to do? Wouldn't we be more blessed if we were experiencing all of the joy of the Lord, right? And not stopping short saying, well, I, I got close. It's probably fine. I don't, it doesn't feel like that to me when I'm not actually experiencing the joy of the Lord. And so this is what you're going to see the Jews do rather than, well, they have a couple options here. They could start still being afraid of the battle that's going to come up. And instead of doing that, they're saying, nope, the Lord is going to do this. We're, going to, we're just going to throw the party now. And in nine months, we're going to go ahead and do the work. But we're going to throw the party now because we're accepting in thankfulness what the Lord has done. You could also see them say, you know what? Um, Haman was really the big bad guy. He's out of the way. I think we're good. I think we got it. We, we took care of the big problem. Now the problem's not bugging us anymore. Let's just leave the rest of that and we'll get to that later. That's another danger. And this is especially true in issues of sin and sanctification in our life. But that's not what they're, where they're going to stop. They're going to win a decisive victory. So in chapter 9, starting in verse 1, now in the 12th month, so fast forward nine months, we're now to this appointed time where, okay, the, you, anybody who wants to come and attack the Jews is allowed, but the Jews are also allowed to defend themselves. In the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples." All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews for fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. 
For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Par Parshandatha, and Delphon, and Espatha, and Poratha, and Adalia, and Aradatha, and Parmashta, and Arasai, and Aradai, and Vizatha, the ton, ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. So, Mordecai is clearly in the ascendancy in the court. He's on the up and up. He's the guy that the king is paying attention to. And in the Persian court, if you didn't pay attention to the guy that was paying attention, if you did not pay attention to the guy that the king was paying attention to, you didn't last very long. If you, we read in Persian history, there was these constant, it was like a very bad place, very scary place to live was the Persian court because there was always these shifting alliances and stuff was going on. And you had to have your head on a swivel and see, okay, who's doing good right now? I want to be on his team. Who's not doing good? I want to stay as far away from him as I can. So Mordecai is clearly doing well. The king likes him. So all the government officials realize, okay, let's help the Jews. Because <laughs> Mordecai is a Jew and the king loves Mordecai. So whatever the Jews are doing, let's be about that. So now the government is actually helping them to chase down these enemies that were so scary and we're going to actually wipe them out. The access and the favor that Haman was using to try and slaughter the Jews is being used to slaughter the Jews' enemies and to actually take out the rest of Haman's family. Now, <clears throat> we can read this, and it can be a little bit um, intense for us, right? We don't live, thankfully, in a day where political changes of power result in, let's go find that guy's 10 sons and get them too, right? That, th thankfully, that's not how we do things. But we have to realize, okay, that this is the day that in which they live. This is historically the context. This is what we read from Persian history about how the Persians did things. This is where they were. The Lord is not calling us to hunt our enemies like this, I don't think, because we live in a different period. Praise the Lord. I'm glad that we don't live in that kind of world. But we also don't get to look at them and say, wow, I don't know, that's kind of, that's kind of violent and intense. That, that, they shouldn't have done that. Here's the reason why I can say we don't get to do that. This is not just the Jews taking vengeance on their personal enemies. This is not just, well, they wanted to kill us, so we're going to kill them. This is the final period on a blood feud that's been going on since the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel? 1 Samuel. And that's very important. Remember at the beginning of the story, it says Haman the Agagite. And you have to imagine that it's like in one of those action movies where all of a sudden it zooms in on Haman's face and there's like Haman the Agagite underneath him. Like Haman's the final boss. This is the guy that for this long, long period of time has not actually been taken care of. The Agagites were supposed to be taken out when the Israelites moved into the land, and they weren't. Then they were supposed to be taken out with Saul, and Saul didn't finish the job. And they've continued to plague the Jews up until this time, where now it looks like they're going to actually get the, they're actually going to finish the job and take the Jews out. So for the Jews to just say, you know what, that's all super intense. We don't need to kill everybody. Let's just leave them be. That sounds very holy. Yeah, don't, don't do anything. That's crazy. Don't be crazy. But it was that exact spirit of holding back from the work that God had called them to do that had gotten Saul in trouble in the first place. Maybe this is why they take some very specific actions. You can see that in the edict, they said, okay, we're allowed to kill them and take the plunder. But they don't actually take any of the plunder. And I'm, I'm not going to be dogmatic on this, but to me, it seems to be kind of rhyming with what happened with Saul. They're saying, okay, what did Saul do? We're going to do the opposite of that. Saul didn't kill him, but he did take the plunder. We're going to kill him but not take the plunder. Let's just not do whatever Saul did, right? In 1 Samuel 15, just as a reminder, starting in verse 17, Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I've brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I've devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to, to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord a great delight, as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen 
than the fat of rams. So we can see a couple of things from this. This is literally kind of a long, long period of this unfinished business that God is resolving. And that's part of how he's using this edict is God is saying, look, I'm going to use you guys to finish the work that King Saul was supposed to finish. I, know, I knew that the Amalekites were evil and I wanted to take them out. And Saul failed to do that. And kind of the tragedy of Saul is it, it wasn't... With Saul, it wasn't necessarily that he just crossed his arms and said, I am not going to obey the Lord. It's that he kept thinking that he was obeying the Lord, but he didn't do what he was actually asked to do. He wouldn't go all the way. He quit before, either when things got hard or when the people said, we want to do this. And he, he wasn't, I don't know, it seemed like he wasn't strong enough in mind to actually accomplish what the Lord was telling him to do. He, he says, oh, I did, I did what the Lord told me to do. And Samuel says, you haven't done any of that. You've taken the spoil. You let the people plunder the camp and take the spoil. You're bringing me the king and saying, look, I brought you the king when I specifically told you not to bring me any of the Amalekites. I told you to kill them all and you didn't. It seems like one of the main differences that we see between David and Saul is that Saul kept giving up on what the Lord told him to do. Oh, I got really close. Now that's good enough. And David was not that kind of person. David would go too far. <laughs> David would go too far all the time. But David was not a quitter. Even when maybe some people would say, David, I think you really messed up. This whole Bathsheba thing is real bad. Maybe you need to take a break. Like, why don't you just not follow the Lord for a while? Why don't you just fix this and then get back to it? And David said, nope, I have sinned. And so I'm going to go to the Lord. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be in the temple. I'm going to get this straight with the Lord because I, I can't rest until this is solved. David would mess things up, but he, was he would never quit on what the Lord had told him to do. And I think that's kind of why the Bible says that he's a man after God's own heart. A man after God's own heart is not, that's David, he's perfect. No, man, David was so violent in a time of violent people that God said, mm, the temple is for your son. <laughs> like, <laughs> most of these people are bloody. You are bloody, bloody. So we're not going to do that, right? David was, I mean, had problems with women. Not just like normal women problems, but like problems. <laughs> this is hundreds and hundreds of women that he kept marrying, right? Which is in that day, it doesn't only mean that he was marrying the women to be with them. It also means that there's alliances he's making. But look, women cause problems for David. He has all these issues. He's, he's rash and he does things and he gets himself in trouble, all this stuff. But he was man after God's own heart because he didn't quit going after the Lord. Saul, in a lot of ways, looks, right? And that was the problem. Saul looked great. Oh, he's a king. He's tall and he's great. But he wasn't actually pursuing the Lord with the same intensity. And that was what caused Saul all of the problems or some of the problems that were caused. Now, God is merciful to us. He's going to keep sanctifying us until the work is completed, right? God could have said, all right, well, you didn't take out the Agagites, so that's just going to be your problem now. You didn't fix it when I told you to fix it. So now, no, that's not what God did. God continued and he actually solved the issue for them. Just because you didn't complete the work in your own strength before changes absolutely nothing about God's promises. Well, God, I was supposed to do this and I failed. And now for 10 years I've been failing and now I guess I've failed. What does that have to do with the Lord's character? I mean, it tells me that you've failed. Yes, I, I know. But I knew that you would fail because that's who you are. That's why you need Jesus, right? So that just tells us something about my failure. It doesn't say anything about God's promise. You can't invalidate God's promise by failing. But here's the thing, if you're sitting somewhere in exile and refusing to take up arms, you don't get to blame the Lord and say that he's left you alone to struggle, right? <clears throat> if the Jews had sat there and said, well, we're, we don't even have the temple anymore and we're just stuck here in Persia and all these bad things are happening, so I guess God's done with us. I, okay, I guess we'll just, we got nine months and then we're, it's over. Would they get to blame the Lord for that? Absolutely not. God said, I gave you an edict that said you get to defend yourself. What? I have provided a way for you to escape. I've given you victory. You need to participate in that. You need to do the thing that I've called you to do. And you may need to get a little intense to accomplish that. You can't defend yourself half-heartedly and say, oh, I don't know if, if God wants this to happen, I guess. No, I don't think so. It doesn't seem like that's what they did because it says that they hunted down their enemies and they accomplished the thing they wanted to accomplish. They wanted peace and they got it. So they, they were participating intensely, I think. But they were doing that because the Lord had provided something for them. And they weren't just sitting there and saying, well, I think we've sinned clearly. And so we're under God's judgment. And so now we can't expect to have any of the Lord's blessings. That sounds so spiritual, but it's actually not. Because it's actually lack of faith. It's not actually super spiritual to try and one-up the Lord and say, oh, I think the Lord's punishing me right now. The Lord is, how many times have you heard this? Or maybe you've said this in your heart. Well, the Lord is telling me right now that I'm, I can't, I'm not supposed to be going to church because I'm, I'm too messed up. So I need to fix this and then I can come back to church. 
Or the Lord's telling me that, you know, because of this issue in my life that I shouldn't be in ministry because of this or that. Or the, Lord, the Lord's telling me that I actually can't. Well, look, is that really what the Lord's telling you? Because you're saying that the Lord's character is not sufficient to handle this issue in your life, so you need to fix it yourself first. That's actually not a very spiritual thing to say. That's not, that's not a super faith-filled thing to say. That's actually not trusting that the Lord is going to do the thing he said he was going to do. I'm not worried about the area where we're fighting our sin and we're asking for God's help and we're struggling. Like, I'm not wor so worried about that. Because those are areas where, look, the Lord has told you, you know, like, fix this. And you know, Lord, I need to fix this. And you're asking the Lord for his help and he's providing, look, if you're fighting, then you're still alive. That's good, right? Dead people don't fight. That's the problem. If you're in there and you're, you're asking the Lord for help and you're, you're pursuing the Lord in an area, okay, that's great. The area that I'm concerned about in my heart and in our hearts are the places where we've kind of given up and said, we start to say lines like, well, you know, we're never going to be perfect until we're with Jesus. Okay, yes, but there is, as Pastor Tyler likes to say all the time, there is no biblical limit to the holiness and sanctification that we can have in Jesus. The Bible doesn't say, well, you can't get past, it doesn't give us a limit. It says, continue to pursue the Lord and always be looking at your life and saying, Lord, that doesn't look like Jesus. I want that out of there. So when we start to, to make peace with a problem in our life and say, well, you know, this is just my personality. This is just how my dad was. This is just the situation I'm in at work. You don't understand what we're doing is we're kind of having that Saul mentality of, I don't know, man, it's the Amalekites, dude. Like, what do you want me to do? Get rid of all of them? Yeah. <laughs> I want you to get rid of all of them. That's what the Lord told you to do. He said, don't quit until the Amalekites are all dead. And in a lot of our hearts, I think sometimes we get to this point where we say, look, man, we, we fought hard out there. It was a good game. We, we took some wins, got some losses, and I think we're good. And the Lord says, I don't think we're good. I want you to pursue that until you've actually achieved victory in that area in your life. And the, what's interesting, and again, I don't want to, we could over-spiritualize this. But what I do think the Lord is showing us from this passage is, look how the Lord blesses people who use his favor and his authority well, and he takes it away from people who don't. Now, I'm not, now I'm not hang on. <laughs> We're not going to make some kind of point about, see, well, the Lord has given you this authority in your life, and you just need to claim, oh, okay, hold on. Hold up a second. But look what has actually happened. The king in this passage has actually given Mordecai this authority to say, hey, you, you make it the way that you want it. And Mordecai says, well, I think the Lord wants to protect us, so let's do that. And the Lord blesses that. And Saul, the, the, it was even in that passage where Samuel says, you know, I know that you're saying, oh, I'm, I'm not a big deal, but God made you the king. Like, it's your responsibility to do the thing that God has asked you to do. So you don't get to shrink back from that and say, oh, I'm actually not that important or special. That's not really humility if the Lord has put you in a situation to do something. And you're shrinking back from it saying, no, I'm actually just pretty normal. Yeah, I know. I wasn't talking about you. God put you in a situation. God gave you that authority and that, that calling to do something. And so it's not really about you. It's about what the Lord has done in your life. You need to do that thing that God has asked you to do. You need to obey until you've actually received the victory from the Lord. So we don't want to be in that place of shrinking back before we've actually accomplished what the Lord has asked us to do. Chapter 9, starting in verse 12. So the king kind of sees this total mess that the Jews make out of uh, everybody who comes up against them. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the 10 sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives, and got relief from their enemies, and killed seventy-five thousand of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the thirteenth day of the month of Adar, and on the fourteenth day, they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th and on the 14th day and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. So, 
the king says, all right, you guys are doing well. What else do you want? And she says, I would like to do this exact same thing one more day. And by the way, I would like you to put all of Haman's sons on the gallows. And you say, but they're dead. And she says, yes, <laughs> that's what they want. They want to make a public display of this is what happens if you mess with the Jews. Right. And now, again, we read these things and we say, oh, my goodness, that's just so awful. OK, yeah. But let's remember what the Amalekites represented. The Amalekites represented Israel's constant compromise and not going far enough with the things that the Lord had told them to do. And I'm sure that's what she's thinking about. It's just like, you know what? Like, my people need to see this, too. They need to see, hey, this is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to keep going until we've actually done the thing God asked us to do. We're not going to go halfway. And so they need to see this and remember, this is serious. We're going to take this seriously. There's this constant theme all through the Old Testament of Israel almost eradicating sin, almost getting rid of all their enemies, almost they got rid of the high places, right? And we got really good. There's like almost no high places left. And then that thing begins to come back as soon as they relax and, and let down their guard. Esther was not going to stop until that threat was totally removed. Now, this is not a call to legalism, right? You just need to be constantly riding yourself and worrying about everything so that you can be free from sin. That's not what we're called to do. It's a call to realize that we are able to take the victory that Jesus has purchased for us. Esther was only able to take these kinds of steps because the king kept coming back and saying, well, what is it that you want to do? What do you want to do? I mean, you've got the signet ring, so what, what makes sense to you for day two? That's what Jesus has done for us. He has taken care of our sin. He has given us Christ's righteousness. And so now, in a sense, the Lord does come to us and say, well, do you, do you want to still be in your sin? Right? That's what the Lord is. And, and honestly, guys, I think sometimes the answer is, yeah, we're, some part of us does. And so we're, we're so comfortable in that place. We're like, you know what? I think we've pursued enough. I think we're comfortable here for now. And the Lord will keep nudging you. And you know this will happen because the Lord will say, are you sure you're still comfortable with that? You still want that? I don't know. I've given you all this. Do you still want that? And he'll keep coming back to us until we say, you know what? I don't want this at all, actually. I want you to have this and I want to keep pursuing you. So we're not called to legalism, but we are called to make sure that we're being completely obedient to what the Lord has done for us. Hebrews 12, uh, 4 through 5 says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you have forgotten the exhortation that, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord or be weary when reproved by him. So, you know, Jesus used to say things like that to people. Well, if you've got a sin, you should probably just tear your eye out. And people would say, oh my goodness, Jesus is so, I don't know, he's so vivid in his illustrations. No, I, I'm, I think he wanted to make sure that they were applying that level of intensity to the sin that was going on in their life. Not, not to keeping the rules or watching for someone else's sin. No, to your life. Make sure that you're not leaving anything in there. Dead people don't fight sin, right? And without God's grace, that's exactly where we were, right? The Bible says, nope, we were pretty, pretty dead. So now that the Lord has made us alive, if we're still able to fight, that means we're still alive. And if we're slowing down and sitting down and then kind of falling asleep and making peace with these things, that's not good. That's not who we are in Jesus. And we need to make sure that we're not doing that. So to finish up, chapter 9, starting in verse 20, and we'll go all the way to the end. There's just a small little chapter at the end. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month Adar and also the 15th day of the same, year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they'd started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the enemy of Hamadatha, the, enemy of, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he'd devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they, they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them, that without fail, they would keep these two days according to what was written, and at the time appointed every year that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. 
Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai, the Jew, gave full written authority, confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in words of peace and truth that these days of Purim should be observed in their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. So they finish this work. They make another feast day, a holiday that they're going to use to celebrate God's deliverance. They name the holiday after the lot, the lots, right, which was kind of like drawing straws or whatever they would cast these is a way of divining what was supposed to be done. And so Haman had said, okay, uh, yeah, there you go, the 12th month. And they're kind of now naming their holiday. They're like, yeah, that's right. We're going to call it the holiday of the lots because the Lord kind of laid everything out for us. And so that's what we're going to call the holiday. Proverbs 16.33 says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. The Jews now have a clear leader in a place of authority and power. That must have been encouraging. But they're realizing that they've always been protected and watched over, whether they felt safe or not, right? What the, we can kind of see those outside circumstances. Oh, look, Esther's doing good. That, now we can feel good about the story. But the whole time, we're seeing that the Lord had control of all this. Even when it looked most out of control and chaotic, the Lord knew what was going on. 1 John 2.1 says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That's even better, right? Like It's one thing to have, okay, we've got the prime minister and he talks to the president. Yeah, but the president can't fix everything. We have Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father, right? So when we sin, when we screw up, or when, look, I didn't sin, but this is still a mess, we have someone we can go to, right? We go to the Lord and we say, look, could you do something for me? You've said that this is not how things are supposed to be in my life. So could you help me to do, to obey the things that you've asked me to do? And I, I think it would be a mistake for us to try and get rules out of the book of Esther for political engagement or strategies on how to become honored and powerful, right? Next time you and all of your, you know, ethnic people face destruction, but you also know someone who's married to the king, then we'll go back and we'll, we can use this as a playbook for that, right? That's not really the situation that we're in, but the Bible says that we don't get to, the New Testament says we don't get to just take these things from the Old Testament and say, yeah, that's a different time, so it doesn't matter. No, these are for our instruction, the Bible says. So these things are important to us. These chapters describe for us the goal that God has for his people, whether we're experiencing that right now outwardly or not. What is the Lord's goal? Well, it seems like where the Lord wanted to get them was to a place where they were safe, taken care of, and experiencing the joy of the Lord. Right? Now, maybe we don't, maybe you don't feel like that right now. You say, I don't feel like any of those things. Or maybe you do, and you say, yeah, you know what? That's, it's great to be in that place. Both of those things are good, but we just need to understand it's up to God how he chooses to exalt us physically, right? We don't get to say, Lord, I want to be, the outward position that I want to be in is rich and powerful. Well, maybe the Lord will choose that for you and maybe he won't. And maybe when you get to heaven, you'll realize, thank you, Lord, for not choosing me to be rich and powerful, right? You have no idea. But I know for sure that the Lord has already exalted us spiritually, through the gospel of grace, right? Not like exalted us like, oh, aren't I so awesome? But he's given us a bunch of things that we didn't deserve, right? Exactly kind of like the king was just giving to Mordecai, like, hey, I'm, I'm going to get rid of Haman. He's no good. Here's all this stuff now. That's exactly the place that we're in with the Lord. We've received all these things from Jesus. Receiving those the Lord's power and his blessings is not the prosperity gospel. It's just the gospel, Right? Do you, you don't get, we, it's not right for us to say, oh, I don't know if, I don't know if the Holy Spirit is for me. That might be for other people. I, look, the Bible says that that's a gift that God is, has purchased at the cost of his son to give to you. That is not a cool thing to say, ah, I don't know if that, nah, for somebody else. Why? <laughs> Jesus thought it was for you. And, and to sit there and say, no, I don't know. I don't think I'm ready yet. Okay. But the Lord disagrees. 
And we can't be, it's not holy or spiritual for us to be keeping ourselves in a certain place because we're afraid of, well, what happens if I get too excited? Or what happens if I go too far? Or what happens when I start, you know, prayerfully doing the things in my workplace that the Lord's called me to do? What happens if people don't like it? Well, look, I don't know, but I don't want to be caught on this side of where the Lord wants me to be. If the Lord has given me vision and said, look, I've put you in this place for a reason and I've given you the power and the authority to do what I'm asking you to do, go for it. I think he'll tell me if I'm getting a little too excited. He'll take care of that. I'm not worried about that. I'm worried about sitting here and waiting and maybe missing the opportunity that the Lord has opened up in front of me, the door that God has provided for me to do what he's asked me to do and to be obedient. I don't want to be disobedient, right? I could, you could be too much obedient, and I think we'll all tell you. If that happens, we'll say, okay, I know you're trying to obey, but can we do it in this certain way? We'll, we'll take care of that. We love you all. But, and we, and we do that for each other, right? We, we, okay, that's, that's too much. But honestly, most times, it's way easier to correct that than it is if you're just going to, you know, sit and not do the things the Lord wants you to do, right? If you've got a, a brother or sister in Christ and, and they're, you know, this happens a lot with new believers. They're, they get so excited and it's easy for people to start saying, well, I don't know, like maybe you're too excited. But I, I really don't like that. I don't like doing that either because it's like, look, the Lord has given them all this excitement and it's not your time to come and take your cynicism and your being grumpy and give it to them. It's time for you to say, hey, that's awesome. Do that and maybe just like adjust this a little bit and don't discourage, right? That heart to serve the Lord. It's a good thing for us to ask ourselves every time or every so often anyway, if we're really supposed to be sitting in the hole that we're sitting in right now. Right? If you're finding, maybe you're in a place where you're saying, you know what, I just have not heard from the Lord in a while. Or I just, this situation in my life is just dogging me and I can't, I don't know what to do about it. Or this thing that's going on in my life, like I know that the Lord wants it to be like this, but it's just like that. And it's tempting, the enemy comes and says, yeah, you know what, I think the Lord has just decided that that's your cross to bear for right now. Why don't you just sit with that and just kind of stew on it for a while. I can't promise that the Lord is going to remove every single thorn and impediment and issue from our life, right? I don't, if that's what we've been promised, then I am not experiencing that, and that's a bummer, right? There are things that will happen. Bills will come due. That's the life that we live in, right? You know, there, you will, we will struggle with sin, too. I, I know all those things are true. But I can promise that according to Scripture, God's desire is for your total sanctification, not like partial, but actually all the way. And he made the ultimate sacrifice for that. He didn't do half of the work, right? He said, no, it's actually completed. I've completely done everything that needs to be done to purchase that and to authorize that. So instead of, you know, hiding from the enemy and just trying to not have things be worse, I think a lot of times we need to push ourselves a little bit and say, well, it's time to get in there and do the things that the Lord is asking me to do and not quit until until everybody's done. Until the referee is pulling me off, I'm going to be in there taking care of what the Lord has asked me to do, right? And the Lord, what's fun about that is the Lord has already done all the work, right? I'm going back to the analogy, like the Lord has already rung Satan's bell and he's just kind of laying there and the Lord says, okay, I'm going to step aside and I want you to get in there. And why he does that, I think part of it is because, look, I'm so weak that he needed to do the first part, <laughs> but he also wants me to get stronger, and the only way that I'm going to do that is actually doing the things he's asked me to do, participating. And even if from his perspective, it probably looks like I'm just kind of punching on a totally knocked out enemy. I don't think it looks super awesome from the Lord's perspective, but he loves me and he wants to put me in a position where I can experience the victory that he wants for me. And so apparently the only way that he's able to do that is he just takes care of the victory and then he hands it to me and I get to just enjoy it. That's really cool. So it's the only way that I would have been able to experience that victory is if he takes care of it and then says, here, this is yours now. Go in there and have fun. Like, go well on him for a minute. And, and you know, like that's what the Lord wants us to do. He doesn't want us to act as if we don't have an advocate or we have not received the victory from the Lord. He wants us to be grateful for those things and to celebrate those things. It's good every once in a while. Why, this is why we tell each other our testimonies. Right? It's tempting for a lot of a lot of times I've heard people say, yeah, that's just, I don't want to talk about that because that's just a place that I was in my life and I'm not there. You cannot do that. That's not fair. Don't cheat everybody else. Why? Because that's the victory that the Lord purchased in your life. You've got to tell us about that. I mean, don't like be cool. Only tell the important details, right? But don't do that thing because sometimes people do that. But but you've got to tell us about that. Why? Because then we're getting to see, check out what the Lord did through that person's life. And it builds in the next generation, your kids, when you tell them, hey, this is where I was and this is what the Lord did. It builds their faith so they say, well, if the Lord took care of that, I bet the Lord can take care of this in my life. 
So it's important that we share those things with each other, that we remember where the Lord has brought us from. So that the next time we face something that looks really scary, we remember, okay, that looks bad, but so did that. And the Lord took care of that, so I think the Lord's going to be able to take care of this. We saw throughout the book of Esther that God's providential care for us, right? God's, God's provision, His calling, His, you know, His will, and our obedience and our action, they work together. They're not opposed. They're not contradictory. It's not, oh, well, you know, you, you have to go do everything, and it's not God's going to do everything, and you don't have to do anything. And we're not going to figure out how those work together from sitting on the couch. Right? If you just sit there and you try and work it out, well, when, what, what am I, you know, what is the rule for when I'm supposed to act? Or, well, no, I think God just does all the acts and I don't, you, you can't do that from the couch. You have to be out there doing what the Lord has asked you to do. And then the Holy Spirit is going to say, hey, right now I want you to do nothing. And then sometimes he's going to say, hey, right now I want you to go in there and don't quit until I've told you to quit. He's going to guide you and direct you when you're participating, when you're experiencing the victory of the Lord, when you're stepping out in faith and kind of taking the ground that the Lord wants you to take. Right, so that's what I want us to be praying for for ourselves and for us as a church. We had, man, let me tell you guys, we had a time in prayer the other Sunday night. I asked some people and they will tell you some stories. I will tell some stories. I will stick around for a minute. But the Lord did some really cool stuff. And we've got to remember that those things, first of all, if you don't miss out on that, that's available every Sunday that we come. And not just Sunday, like go home and pray. But it's something we do every Sunday for that reason because we need the Lord. And we, can't, we don't want to quit and say, I've got enough of the Holy Spirit right now, thank you. But also those things are for us to do the things, Lord. That's for your obedience. You're filled with the Holy Spirit, so you have the power to obey the Lord, not just so that we see a cool thing on Sunday, right? That's awesome, but let's continue to, as we are filled with the Holy Spirit and called and the Lord tells us what to do, to continue to obey.